0: The reading this morning is from the letter of James, which you can find on page 1213 in the Bibles in front of you. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin of all he created, and continuing in chapter five from verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to So may the words of my lips and the thoughts of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So if you'd keep open before you that passage, those passages in uh, the epistle to James. In our series on prayer, we've been looking already at praying to the Father, praying through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we come to our part, praying with faith. And the question is, what does praying with faith mean? And what part does faith have to play in the effectiveness of our prayer? There are various well-known verses in the New Testament which can leave some confusion in people's minds. In the healing miracles, Jesus often wanted to draw out people's faith or to ask some question which confirmed that they had faith sufficient for the healing miracle to be performed. Then in Mark eleven twenty-two, Jesus said, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, and he was speaking of the Mount of Olives, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Whatsoever you ask in prayer Believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Allowing for a degree of hyperbole, it remains a a promise, an apparent promise that with sufficient faith there is nothing we cannot obtain through prayer. But only a few pages back in Mark 9.21, Jesus healed the son of a man whose faith was far from strong, who cried, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Then in John 14, 13, Jesus said in his parting instructions to his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring honor to the Father. How then do these promises of answered prayer compared with the phrase in the prayer which is our pattern, your will be done? Or perhaps, the greatest and most moving example of prayer our lord's passionate prayer on the mount of olives father if you are willing take this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done luke twenty two forty two that is the question which we can't escape and it's one which has puzzled many others before us. So we come to our passage in the Epistle to James, starting in chapter 1. The paragraph heading uh, in the NIV, Trials and Tribulations, is misleading. But we need to note that in verses 2 to 12 are those which deal with trials, and verses 13 to 18 is a separate section about temptation, and he deals with the two aspects differently. We're not told what kind of trials were being experienced. Perhaps James is seeing life as a series of one kind of tests after another, whether they're expressed in physical or mental illness, in handicap or bereavement or problems with relationships or employment, war or poverty, hunger or homelessness, the sort of trials which may be found in any congregation, not least St. Andrews. For had not Jesus himself suffered many trials during his ministry, criticism growing into persecution, betrayal, misunderstanding, false accusations, injustice, mockery, isolation, and finally the passion itself? Those who undergo trials can be very negative about them, can be frozen with fear or self-pity, But James is astonishingly positive. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for faith leads to perseverance, and perseverance to maturity. He's not saying that trials are to be sought out, nor that they're insignificant, nor easy to bear. How could anyone rejoice faced with the suffering of a child, the hunger of his family, or fear of persecution, imprisonment, or torture. But if trials are not to be enjoyed for themselves, their value is that we can be strengthened by the knowledge that Christ is at our side in our suffering, that he too suffered as his disciples are called to do, and that through testing may come perseverance and spiritual maturity. Or to put it another way, if our faith has never been tested, we are as unlikely to grow spiritually as the would-be athlete who never stretches his muscles would grow physically. It's a call to persevere steadfastly and not to waver. And so James urges us to pray for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it, that is wisdom, will be given to him. Notice that he's not saying that the prayer should primarily be for the trial to come to an end, though that will be a natural outcome to seek, nor that God will remove the problem, but rather that the prayer should be for wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Jesus himself displayed throughout the trials of his ministry. The spiritual wisdom that made him different from all others was his close relationship with his father, the way in which he saw all around him through the eyes of God, the way he recognized and dealt with the distractions of false teachers and false values, his ability to apply his spiritual insight to every problem of life. It is that wisdom that grasp of faith that we need above all else in facing the hard realities of our existence, the ability to live wholly for and with the Lord, always striving for Christian maturity as our goal. So ask God for wisdom, and in his generosity he will surely give it despite our unworthiness. The only condition is, Uh, that we must believe and not doubt. For he who doubts God and the reality of his being and the goodness of his character is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The question for us is whether we are wholly committed to the Lord or whether he is the master of our lives or whether we are compromising, keeping one foot in God's kingdom whilst not having shaken the dust of the world from the other foot. No man can serve two masters. The double-minded person is never at peace with himself, restless, unable when a crisis hits him, to rest in the Lord, to trust in the wisdom of God. We need God's wisdom, and it is there if we will firmly and unreservedly pray for it. Michael Wenham, brother of David, that we know well, is the incumbent of Stanford in the Vale. And for some years now, he's been suffering from motor neurone disease. He is still exercising his ministry, albeit from a wheelchair, and enriched a ministry enriched by the weakness of his body. If you care to pick up a copy of The Door on your way out, You'll see a full page article interview uh, with Michael uh, about his ministry. Asked if he believed that he might be healed and if he was praying for healing, he replied that he's not expecting a miracle in that way. Having seen people, this is a quote, having seen people healed, I am convinced that God is able to do the impossible. What has been really helpful is that God is constantly showing in small ways that he is caring for me. I know I am in safe hands. Unquote. That ability to know what to pray for, to accept his incapacity and the foreshortening of his life seems to me to be God's wisdom. Then we come on to verses 9 to 11, which at first sight Seem to be out of place. What is James doing? Suddenly make comparisons between rich and poor. Yet this discussion of trials continues in verse 12. So surely this is just an aside by way of illustration. The brother in humble circumstances might well be suffering the trials of his poverty. And may be expected to feel that sharing a bit of the wealth of the rich would help him enormously and be just. Riches too can be an obstacle, an insidious temptation to rely on acquired or inherited wealth rather than on God. We're in Dives and Lazarus territory here. The wisdom of the poor man is that despite his lack of worldly resources, he, like Lazarus, holds a high position in the sight of God. The one whose temptation is to rely on his wealth must take pride not in his grand house, nor the size of, inv- of his investment portfolio, nor, like divies in his ability to insulate himself from the messier aspects of life. But he must glory in the wisdom that he, too, is chosen and accepted and has an opportunity to use his riches to be generous to those in need and to advance the kingdom of God and to learn to sit lightly to his possessions. Both the poor man and the rich must see their situation not through the judgment of the world, but in the light of the wisdom from God. Life must be lived in the dimension of eternity. So in verse 12, James closes his section on trials. Blessed is the man who perseveres during trial, he says, but this time he's not thinking of endurance as a means to spiritual growth, but rather of reward. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. God's promise is to those who love him. To be possessed by love for God is the means to enable us to endure and to survive trials. And it's not our own self-control or self-reliance, but this powerful love, its depth, and its reality. But then in verses 13 to 18, James turns from trials to temptations. In the interest of time, I'm going to gloss over this passage, except to say that temptation, too, must be met with prayer, and to remind ourselves that in the garden... When the three disciples fell asleep, when they should have watched with their master, Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. But I want you now to turn over to chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Here we have a fascinating insight into the early practice of prayer in the local church in the first century. He deals first with individual prayer, then with elders praying for the sick, then mutual prayer, and finally an example of prophetic prayer. First then there's the statement in verse 13, contrasting those who are in trouble with those who are happy, a scale which may cover everyone in church today or any day. That scale is, uh, those those in trouble must pray. But if the trouble is serious, they'll surely not be bursting into song. Rather, as the old chorus has it, they'll want to take it to the Lord in prayer, knowing that the Lord will always hear and always understand. No doubt, at least at first, they'll pray that the trial may be removed, but always that they will want to seek the Lord's will and to have his wisdom to understand and to deal with the problem, to place the trial in the context of eternity. Prayer may not remove the affliction, but it can most certainly transform it. So what of those who are happy? The word translated happy means something like buoyant, happy in spirit. James recognizes human nature that such joy can be expressed in songs of praise to the Lord Calvin says of this verse that it's a reminder that there is no time that God doesn't invite us to himself we need God's help when we're in trouble we need to turn to God to give thanks in our joy God is our sufficiency perhaps most of us most of the time are somewhere in between being deeply troubled and bubbling over not at one end of the scale or the other. But we're to look out for others, to be sensitive to their needs, to weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. And then we come to the sick. Here is the ministry of prayer and healing. In our church, most likely, but not necessarily, those recognized as having gifts of pastoral care along with the clergy. James is not here contemplating a healing service, but rather a private ministry for church members in deep need. For what James says seems to recognize that the sick person has an almost passive role. He's probably very sick and close to death. And apart from calling the elders to pray for him, it's the prayer of faith of the elders which is effective. Oil was to be used to anoint the victim as it was when Jesus sent out the disciples in Mark 6.13. A symbol of healing, as water is a symbol of cleansing in baptism, or bread and wine are symbols of Christ's body and blood in communion. There are two other things to mention. One, the question of forgiveness of sin. We are not to make a connection in every case, or in most cases, between sickness and sin. But there may be some burden on the heart of the sick person which he wants to seek forgiveness for and which needs to be dealt with. And secondly, the statement that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. Now I will come back to that later. So thirdly, there's a ministry of mutual prayer. This is not the kind of prayer that we have in the North Isle before or during or after a service or which may be exercised in a small group, or by two or three friends getting together to pray for each other. It seems that what James' concern is about confessing our sins to those against whom we have sinned, and seeking and finding peace and reconciliation, and so healing a damaged relationship, which might otherwise harm the whole community. It's in line with Matthew 5.23, about the man coming to worship, and remembering an unresolved relationship, first go and be reconciled to your brother. James has a very high view of Christian fellowship and sees the danger of allowing disagreements to fester and remain unresolved. It may be that he's writing of a particular situation and that the readers will take the point and bury the hatchet and bury their pride and say, Sorry. Uh, perhaps for the kind of aggressive attitude referred to in chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 1. And with these thoughts about prayer in mind, and particularly the statement in verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, he turns to Elijah as an example. I'll leave you to read about Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 19. The point is that though Elijah was human and fallible, yet he was a great prophet. And when he prayed earnestly, he did so with patience and persistence and faith, and the answer to his prayer was a miraculous intervention by the Lord. But the title to this sermon is Prayer in Faith, and how and with what faith we are to come to God in prayer. There's no doubt that throughout the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, we're shown that regular and real prayer is part and parcel of our Christian discipleship, the lifeblood of our walk with Christ, an essential means of grace, a powerful weapon in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is the shield of faith which is part of the armor of the Christian soldier. It's our access to God and the source and means by which we feed on the life of God and have our lives transformed by his wisdom. Like any child, we'll pour out our deepest hopes and anxieties to our Heavenly Father and will do it in the confidence of his power and love and goodness. Our prayers should reflect the pattern given to us in the prayer given by Jesus in response to the disciples' request To teach us to pray. But we are to come to God in faith, to pray in faith, not to doubt, to ask in His name. Surely we come believing that He hears us and knows our hearts, but how far can we go in pressing a particular agenda of ours that X may be healed or Y may pass his or her exams? or Zed may be able to conceive the child she's longing for. How are we to reconcile these statements with those with which I began? What does it mean when we read James 5.15? The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. When the experience of all Christians is that very often, prayer, say, for a sick person or for someone's conversion for, for the release of a hostage, may not be answered in the way or in the timescale that we would wish. C.S. Lewis wrestled with this problem in his book, Christian Reflections. He speaks of Christian teaching seeming at first sight to contain two different patterns of petitionary prayer, which are inconsistent with each other. One takes the phrase, Your will be done, and makes all our prayers conditional on them being in accordance with God's will. Not that they would necessarily be resigned and submissive, he says. They may be more than that, but never less than submissive. We believe in the existence, the goodness, and the wisdom of God, but can't be sure that God will give us the things we ask for, unsure that they are in line with his will. So he says, I always pray for my friends, adding the rider, if it be your will. But the other pattern of faith he refers to uh, is that the particular outcome we ask for and anticipate will be granted. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Again and again in the New Testament, we find the demand not merely for a general trust in the goodness of God, but for faith of a more particular sort that that for which we pray will come to pass. This is the faith which follows the injunction to ask in faith and without doubting. But he argues that certainty of faith is precisely what Jesus did not exhibit in his Gethsemane prayer when he was looking to discover the Father's will and was submissive to that will. After a dozen pages of high quality argument, Lewis says, At present, I have got no further. I come to you for guidance. How am I to pray this very night? So we must be careful with such statements as verse 15. We know that prayer is answered on some occasions in what seems to be a way in which we can only explain that God has intervened and God has acted. But we also know that there are other occasions when fervent prayer by committed Christians does not seem to affect the healing or obtain the answer we are seeking. Alec Mateer, in his commentary on James, puts it this way, Prayer is a commitment to the will of God, and all true prayer exercises its truest faith in patiently waiting to see what God has determined to do. The one thing he promises on this and other passages do not encourage or allow is that we should come into the place of prayer in a stubborn insistence that we've got it right and that our will must be done. The majority of our prayers are prayers of rest and rightly so. Very often we do not know what what to ask for either for ourselves or for others and are glad to fall back on the Lord and his goodness. As I reflect on this issue, my mind goes back to about 1984 and the uh, evangelist David Watson. He was the most gifted evangelist with a ministry which was national and international. At the age of 50, at the very height of his powers, and when he was being used to bring many people to Christ, he was diagnosed with cancer. All rational arguments were that he should be cured, not only for him personally and for his wife and young son, but to enable his fruitful ministry to go on for many more years. After surgery, the faces of the doctors were long, but the evangelical world got onto its knees and pleaded for David's healing. But that was the wisdom of the world, and it was not to be. He struggled on in increasing weakness until he went to be with the Lord. Perhaps he knew it would be so, as he increasingly focused on his life with Christ and kept on saying, the best is yet to be. Praying the prayer of faith means coming in faith to the God we know as welcoming and gentle and wise, offering ourselves and our souls and bodies to him Pouring out our desires and longings to him, but looking above all for his wisdom and wanting our wills to be shaped by that wisdom. Listening for signs of God's response, being changed as we must by this contact with the divine. We can be sure that our prayers are heard and leave the rest to God's wisdom. It may be that God will grant what we long for. For five long years, the church prayed for the deliverance of Terry Waite while he was imprisoned in a hole in the ground in Beirut, and there was no sign of his life at all. And then, at long last, the prayer for his release was amazingly answered. But we may find that the answer is not the one we expected and that in fact we may need to pray for another outcome. Perhaps the prayer for healing we would love to see must become a prayer for acceptance, for peace, and preparation for a different future. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, teach us to pray.